0: I'm Imogen Maria
1: Smith. I'm David Bank. I'm Brian Walsh, and this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. On today's show, private capital for public good. In response to the coronavirus crisis, there's been an outpouring of public capital for public good. Trillions of dollars in stimulus, bailouts, liquidity, and easing represents public capital for private goods, the rescue of paychecks, companies, and markets. Investors, including some senators, are playing the markets and pocketing the profits. That's private capital for private good. Impact investing has always been about private capital for public good. So how is it stacking up in the crisis? David, at Impact Alpha, you laid down what you call the 10x challenge. What is that?
2: Well, Brian, 10x seems to be like the least we could do, really. Like, we've been talking about the scale of the response needed to the coronavirus, and we've seen... You know, the federal government, for example, throw, you know, all restraint out the window uh, and the Federal Reserve as well and and scale up, you know, relief packages, you know, that are in the five, six, seven trillion dollar range, far above what was considered a bailout package back, you know, in the great financial crisis or something. And 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 lots of money being thrown at the coronavirus, which is appropriate to the scale of the challenge. And so the question is, is private capital, which is a very large amount of the capital, you know, is it coming through in the same way? What is the responsibility of private capital to the great pandemic and coming depression? That was that was the question that Impact Alpha has been trying to wrestle with. And we've been Scrambling, kind of frankly, for morsels. So, you know, there's yes, there are fund managers that are trying to rescue their portfolios by, you know, finding, you know, some kind of liquidity options for them. There are obviously heroic community development financial institutions we've been tracking that are, you know, getting loans out quickly to, you know, disadvantaged communities and, and underserved communities and whatnot to make sure that those businesses don't go bust, you know, um, to the, to, you know, pos- to the extent possible. You know, there's all kinds of like tech, impact tech types that are pivoting their portfolios to find, you know, not. just vaccines but you know therapeutics or or hand sanitizer or what have you and um you know testing and and that sort of thing and then there's even these social bonds like um have been floated uh recently you know in the sort of billion dollar range to kind of um get in the public debt markets the, the bond markets get private investors to be able to backstop the need for quick capital so there is stuff happening but it's not like the same kind of step change of of billions to trillions so that would be like several orders of magnitude. 10x is one order of magnitude. So I figured like impact investing, you know, writ large, should at least get to that first order of magnitude so that it can be shown that it really can go exponential, you know, as needed. And, and that was the 10x challenge. Like, let's do that first order of magnitude.
1: And Imogen, you've always been our lovable but friendly curmudgeon who is always a, a bit skeptical about impact investing. And I think that there's an idea out there that for, for many years that impact investing um, has been sitting at the kids table. And that the adults' table is where the grown ups uh, do real finance, real capital markets, real transactions, and impact investing is this you know, smaller kind of chump change at the kids' table. Uh, wh- what do you see as uh, this, this moment right now for impact investing? Is it, is it a chance to demonstrate that it has a role to play and that it should be at the grown ups' table?
0: I think you know. I think that there are different str- strands of impact investing. The the mainstream impact investing that we talk about, the sort of the stuff that's supported by like the Ford Foundation and the GIN and a lot of efforts like that. You know, I mean, frankly, like I don't think the grown ups' table cares what the kids are doing right now. And you know, I, I think that the problem in part is that kind of to what um, David was saying, like the scale of the problem is so large and the amount of money that we're talking about is so large and you know a lot of the deals that impact investing is talking about are still so small that it's not it's not resonating any long any longer and i think you know a lot of those conversations about oh you know is kkr launching an impact fund woohoo is you know nobody cares right so i, I don't think that the grown ups table is sitting there being like, oh, where are all those impact investors at the party, right? I think that, like, you know, they're talking about, you know, risk in their portfolio. They're talking about, you know, holy shit, what's going on in oil prices? They're talking about the repo market. They're not talking about, like, oh, what is some loan doing in, in a city Chicago, right? It doesn't mean that like that work isn't important and that that it isn't providing a vital service to individuals and communities, but it's not really, it's it's not relevant to the larger conversation. Now, the important di- distinction is when you're talking about DFIs, right? When you're talking about large financial institutions that have, that this is what they do you know, that is very much relevant um, and in some cases it is going to be sort of like the only game in town for financing businesses at, in particularly emerging market countries. The problem in part is that historically there hasn't been any, in, like that is not, the institutional investing community has no idea what those people do for the most part, right? It's not, they don't spend a lot of, there isn't a lot of co- interconnectivity between those conversations.
2: Can I can I jump in to say that one of the marks of when you're still at the kiddie table is is when you still need the approval of the adults to move off <laughs> away from the kiddie table, and I don't think impact investing needs to be, um, you know, admitted to anything. It doesn't need to ask for permission. It doesn't need to ask for permission from anybody or admitted to anything. I think what we're talking about here is that as the recovery uh, unfolds as the i don't know i guess recovery assumes you've hit the bottom as the crisis unfolds and the recovery eventually ensues um the channels of getting capital out need to be like i said 10x 100x 1000x bigger than they are now um because every community will need it every business will need it every restaurant every dry cleaner every 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 main street every every supply chain every you know food basket food you know food 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 area um Will need to be refinanced, basically. And the banking opportunities, the investment opportunities, but then also the social design opportunities of what you're gonna how you're gonna reinvest all that are gonna be immense. And those are the very things that presumably impact investors have been incubating all these years. All of those ways of getting capital out, all of those ways of thinking about long-term impacts, of thinking about ecosystems, all of those, all of those kind of things. I'm saying if they don't take advantage of this opportunity now it ain't coming back again. The money's going to be gone. The communities will be, you know, in, in dire straits to say the least. And everybody will say, you had your shot. So I think it's almost a do or die moment for folks who think that they have a better plan because the old plan basically didn't work very well. So the world is open to solutions now. The money is flowing. It's not like there's a shortage of money now. There is more stimulus money out there than has ever been, you know, imagined. So it's so, so this is the time to act. That's a, That's my... And and the kinds of things you're saying, Imogen, are all exactly true and sort of the problem at some level, which is everybody thinks it's just going to be reflating the same old, same old. And that's basically because that's what they want it to be. And that's not what it should be. And that I, maybe I'm too long sitting in quarantine here in my own house thinking of these things, but it's driving me nuts. This You don't get a disruption like this very often. Let's take advantage of it and build something new. So I
0: wonder if... Um, I think one of the problems impact investing has, and you know, it has always had, and we've talked about this in the past, is its its own insularity, right? Like it is, you know, in in many respects, very inward looking, um, and likes to sort of do things on its own and go its own way. Um,
2: Follow the money, I would say. Its 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 own way is the way where the money flows. And, you know, we've seen we've seen the, you know, the, the, the sort of ESG, you know, whatever, modest, you know, performance bonus or something. That's probably good. But that's kind of like beside the point in the scheme of things. I think what the scheme of things is more like what these universal owners that we wrote about a while back, you know, and, and our friend Hiro Mizuno from X of the GPIF and, and, and um, Chris Alman from Calsters and all those folks are even before the virus were saying, before the crisis, we're saying we need to have a new way of thinking about the sustainability of the financial system, and so it's not just going their own way when folks like that are talking about moving, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars.
0: But yeah, okay, so strongly disagree with you. I think that one of the things that's going on in the institutional investor space is you are seeing all these people come out with like white papers and saying, "Oh, we should do blah blah blah," and meanwhile they're not doing cool right, and so. They're still perpetuating the same system. They're still investing in private equity. They're still undermining sort of the very things that they claim to believe in. Um, and so... But didn't
2: the crisis, didn't the crisis, quote unquote, disrupt some of that thinking or could, or, or shouldn't it?
0: No, we've, we've increased, I mean, the 2008 crisis or the most recent crisis? The most recent crisis hasn't done anything in terms of like institutional investor thinking at this point. They're just thinking like, holy shit, like... How well, let me just I... ask
2: you a question. Let me ask you a question. I, I, I agree with that. Holy shit, and, 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 and how do That's I hedge
0: and whatnot.
1: Just so you know, the swearing wouldn't be taking place at the kids' table. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what kids you've been hanging around yeah. with. My teenager, it certainly would be. certainly <laughs> so
0: what if I was there.
2: <laughs> um, but um, the, but Im- Imogen, to your point, Would they think that oh, systemic risk takes has taken on a different meaning for us than it did beforehand? And when folks talk about the systemic risk, just for example, of climate change, that now has increased salience. Is that discussion going on at all?
0: Yeah, they're just gonna. I mean, it's fascinating to me that you know a global pandemic was not considered was not being viewed as a serious systemic risk before this. The fact that Bridgewater was like short vol going into this is mind blowing to me right like i don't understand if your job is to be a risk explain
2: manager, that to our listeners as i always say when when i don't understand something
0: <laughs> so bridgewater <laughs> you know there was this whole thing with like risk parity which is an investment strategy blowing up going into this crisis and basically they had not factored in the impact that the coronavirus might have on their investment strategies. So Bridgewater, which is, you know, the, the largest hedge fund, very highly regarded fund, run by a guy called Ray Dalio, you know, lost a shit ton, to give you the technical term, of money going into this crisis. And the reason was, is that they did not think that there was going to be, they didn't think there was going to be a huge downturn. They didn't think there was going to be a huge amount of market volatility. They basically, they, according to them, they were tracking the coronavirus, but they didn't think it was going to be a problem. And I don't, I don't understand. And you know, this is sort of like you know a classic black swan thing. And the problem with the, the way that risk management works and financial analysis works is it's backwards looking. So because you know, very simplistically, because every other global health crisis or potentially global health crisis in recent memory has not had a financial impact or serious financial impact. So SARS did not have a serious global financial impact. It certainly didn't have an impact on the US. Um, Swine flu didn't. Um, You know, the AIDS crisis didn't, right? Um, And so it was not being looked at as a potential devastating risk. And as a result, you had all these fund managers who were just like, hey, you know, everything's fine. And actually... Where in Bridgewater's case, even short volatility, volatility, the volatility index being sort of a sign of, you know, the amount of risk or volatility wow. in the markets.
2: So they bet against volatility and lost.
0: Yeah. But the fact that you would actually not even, it wasn't even like they were neutral. They literally, and then, and then Ray Dalio was like, you know, hey, you know, I mean, it was kind of like, you know, the the Bernie Sanders or the Jeremy Corbyn, we had all the right policy. Everyone agreed with our policies. They just didn't vote for us. He was like, you know, my risk our risk systems worked. We just lost money. And so, you know, what will now happen is, yes, they'll be like, oh, we should consider this to be a risk. But that doesn't mean, and again, you know, like CalPERS took off, and, you know, institutional investor actually did a very good job on this. Um, CalPERS took off, they had a hedge strategy on um, post-2008. And they took it off, I can't remember exactly when, but within the last 12 months um, because they didn't like paying for it. And then, you know, the world blew up and one of their board members was like, oh, how's that risk strategy working out? Um, well,
2: that's why I pay my earthquake insurance every year out here in California because I assume the year I don't pay it, that's when the earthquake
0: will <laughs> So we'll know so if there that, is an earthquake <laughs> it's just that you have you paying it. But yeah, so are they going to look at global risk differently? Yes. Are they going to you know address the fundamental underlying problems no right um and that's you know okay oh, that's okay, that's, okay so
2: risk was only one of my four arguments okay. um that uh, you want to hear the other three sure risk risk you've blown out of the water the other three is that the social people have been saying this you know it's sort of the moment for the s in esg to to rise um and and it's social moment because now all the social needs are so clear and apparent and everybody will pay attention to them and and morgan stanley actually took this as a um a signal that costs you know labor costs would go up because basically people, workers would be demanding more benefits and, and and wages and of course that's a drag on on earnings at some level so there was sort of a watch out for the earnings of anybody that might have to pay their workers more um but from the other point of view it was get ahead of that and you and pay your workers and and treat them well and build a good company with good benefits in the new world could be valued well right because actually the world that's what the world kind of needs so um so so that as this new social contract and that could be institutionalized because that maybe they won't do it on their own but it could be institutionalized for example by a new uh, administration, for example, just for take one example in the in the United States, and in a kind of um, way that uh, rewards companies that help uh, rebuild from the uh, crisis by employing folks. So that was another idea: forge a new social contract. So um, then the, you
0: you want to tell me? You want me to tell you why you're wrong on that one when it comes to that one? Like I can
2: that? almost write your script for for myself. <laughs> the third one
1: was. <laughs> well, wait, wait! no, let's let's just take that. But why? why? <laughs> Imogen, why why is he wrong? Uh, wh- why are uh, companies not going to build a new social contract in light of the coronavirus crisis, where they will recognize that their human capital should be an asset to their business and that they should invest in uh, worker protection, you know, paid sick leave, better wages, things like that, to to invest in this asset? Why why will they not that not be the, the American model of the
0: American model capital, of capitalism? Capitalism <clears throat> believes that the business of corporations is to make money for their shareholders and i thought
2: we got rid of shareholder primacy and we're now we're into stakeholder capitalism
0: yeah that's what you think but you're wrong Uh, (laughs) and the problem is is the majority of asset owners and investors still believe in shareholder primacy and have been benefiting from that and so if you want you know and this goes back to the question of sort of why isn't impact investing at the big kids table and part of it is because we need to have a conversation about organized labor, and you need to bring unions into the conversations, and unions need to come into the conversations in ways that are valuable and meaningful. And in, and until they step up as stakeholders and they say, you know, I don't want my pension money going towards things that are undermining labor, then you're not really going to see meaningful change. And the reason that that's not happening is because of pension obligations and. You know, this belief that the fiduciary duty means I have to go and invest in the highest performing assets, even if those highest performing assets undermine and undervalue labor. So, and I think again, this is one of the ways in which maybe the impact investing movement in some regards has been focusing on the wrong questions. Maybe it's not so much about maximizing, you know, the capital but as it is sort of maximizing the transparency and the monitoring of of that capital and ensuring that we put in place sort of the correct rules of the road to see, you know, to to have these changes happen.
2: Correct rules of the road, I couldn't agree with more. Like for example, um, even a Republican, may not have this right, so it bears some checking, but um, (laughs) Josh Hawley from Missouri, um, young up and coming Republican is is calling for uh, the government in effect, Paying like eighty percent of the wages of of the workers, um, so the rules of the road, I think, are up for grabs. So I, I agree with you that it's 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 going to require some uh, mandates in in this case, um, uh, at least some some tax policy of of some sort.
0: So yeah, I I mean, I think, but I think
2: I have another one.
0: I know, I know, I think I know what your next one is. But go ahead.
2: Hold corporations accountable. That in effect corporate uh, goes back to the stakeholder thing which as uh, and you're completely right again uh, in terms of the emptiness at some level of that business roundtable um pledge last year however as a, as a as a as a journalist we've been making great hay with it because you you have it in writing and signed by 181 CEOs and they say things like, you know, we're going to like do well by our, uh, our workers. We're going to do well by communities. We're going to do well by our suppliers, for example. And you have, just as we're going into right now, the um, annual meeting season and, and shareholder resolutions and whatnot. And you're going to have asset managers, uh, hopefully asset owners, as I've mentioned, universal owners and others, asset owners, holding asset managers accountable to holding corporations accountable. So in this, it's a new day for shareholder Democracy and corporations now being stakeholder entities—you um, know—you can mobilize all that corporate power for uh, uh, for public good as well. What do you think, Imogen?
0: So, well, wait—just just
1: on, on, on that <laughs> piece, though, David. Is, let me let me jump in. That uh, is in a, in a, a compelling case has been made uh, about the Business Roundtable statement on the this idea of stakeholder capitalism. That it in fact it's a part of a broader battle, if you will, between management and, and, and shareholders and, and, and boards and that you're effectively, um, it's, a, it's a power grab by CEOs to say, well, we're going to determine what's in the best interest of these different stakeholders. And so give us that leeway uh, to uh, make those trade-offs and make those decisions and it's actually against shareholders. I
2: agree Brian we, we made I mean that was the, the criticism of it but the question now and it's the same question I had to imagine before is doesn't the crisis change that doesn't haven't stakeholders for example just become that much more you know essential to any to any enterprise and to the extent that we don't at least make the case that it has changed it I think then we will slip back into the sort of status quo you know all too quickly.
0: So I have mixed views on shareholder engagement. Um, I used to be fairly negative on it, because, you know, I think we've been sitting around having these nice chats for 40 years, and it's hard to see that really much has come out of it, right. Um, and you know, when you look at proxy, and even stuff like, I mean, frankly, you know, all the efforts around, um, you know, the the climate change, carbon disclosure, two degree scenario analysis, you know, in a very real way. It's not really moving the needle in terms of what these companies are doing. You know, Enron is still turning around. So Exxon is still, still turning around, and you know, telling shareholders yeah. to get lost. Um, and you know, if Pers and Stirs aren't going to divest from fossil fuels, then they can you know sit around and have these chats as long as they want. They're not necessarily achieving very much, and it and it becomes well, That's the why thing, the thing you do absent real action.
2: That's why some people are saying in the, you know, if there is going to be a, say, an oil bailout, you know, just make sure that the public uh, gets 51% of the shares so that we can um, have, you know, vote new boards in and manage the decline of, of the oil companies. I mean, that's, that would be real shareholder engagement.
0: Yes, but that's not going to happen.
2: <laughs> um. <laughs> so I've only got one? no. no. <laughs> No. <laughs> You've knocked three of the Hold four on, legs out not, of my my table engagement. here. It's it's it is Hold wobbling on. badly. Hold on,
0: I, I do think, but I, I think that you know, I think shareholder engagement can, in instances, be effective, and I've seen you know, I think long term dialogues with corporations can can matter, um, and I have s- seen it be effective, um, but again, I think that. It needs to be. It needs to be meaningful, and it needs to have a holistic to approach. By what do we mean by stakeholders, right? So yeah, it needs to really. And then it it can't all happen behind closed doors, right? There needs to be transparency and accountability, um, to encourage and force meaningful change. So I do. I agree with you that there is, and it's not just, you know, it's not just shareholders, it's consumers, right? I think that sort of galvanized action to, to force companies and management and leadership to change can make a difference. Um,
2: Okay. Once again, I'm in complete agreement um, with that and in favor of of exactly that kind of a pressure. Can I give you my fourth just so you can demolish it and and, and I'll go crawl (laughs) under a rock? Sure. (laughs) The fourth is that it's about expectations. It's about a bet on the future. And that um, at some level, it, it, it wraps the other ones together, but it has to do with where you think the world is going. And so investors, as you know way better than me, you know we'll make bets on all kinds of things like you just mentioned on on volatility in general on the you know the discount rate and when the fed will act on you know what the tra- trade deficit might or might not be or whatever um, the new jobs numbers and they'll make bets and what if investors made a bet that we in fact were going to muddle our way through and and get to the other side not only of the pandemic but of the climate crisis and the sort of sustainability and, and environmental crisis in general, and and and, and sort of a, a, a social dislocation that has you know roiled through the world in a in a big way. And that we are, in fact, there was a another side of that, and that that was something like you know the sustainable, inclusive future that that we all kind of dream about in our in our fevered imaginations. And that, in fact, they wanted to be part of that future because that was going to be better for business as well as for all their quote stakeholders. And so instead of just hedging, as you said, instead of just taking out a little bit of a low carbon fund here, a little bit of an SGG bond there, making sure that they, you know, were, were properly balanced in their portfolio against all that, that they actually bet on saying we would like to be invested in that future that is better, not only better for all of us, but better for business. And that that's where we want to go. Kind of the universal owner argument that I was making earlier. But everybody, instead of just those big guys, everybody basically said that we're going all in. And that if lead, you know, God forbid, our our, our political leader said, you know, we're all going all in, and we're point everything is pointed in that direction. And that's where the future is. That's where you want to be. That's where the smart money is going. So that's my last uh, claim. Is yes. basically leadership. Leadership. Leadership yes. bets on the future. Could that work?
0: Yes, it's not going to. Well, yes and no. I was with you sort of 50% of the way through. Oh, just give me a yes, please. (laughs) No.
1: Imogen, throw him a bone.
0: So I think that, you know, so, you know, on the one hand, in effect, what you've kind of, what you're kind of saying is the sort of the generation investment management argument, right? Like the smart way to make money is make long term bets on smart progressive companies that are leading the way into the future right and and that yes that makes a lot of sense and i think that that is sort of the sustainability argument and and you do see investors doing that the problem is a couple of things one um, the problem is, a large problem is indexing, right? That because I'm a universal owner, I just own everything. I'm not making, I'm just making a bet on the economy. I'm not, I'm not leaning into, you know, one company or another. I'm just, I'm betting on the whole thing. And so in a sense, my view becomes irrelevant. Um, and, you know, it will be interesting. Change and, the
2: indexes, change the markets, we've always well, said.
0: Yeah, but, you know, you're you're asking for a complete systemic shift to change the indices institutional investors and wall street alone left to their own devices won't do that and they would say you know that's the purpose of the market. The market will figure that out, right? Like
2: Yeah, but the mo- index is a particular slice yeah, it's all of the a market, artificial a particular construct, algorithm. You, can, you could have a carbon weighted index, you could have a you could have a sustainability weighted yeah. index and you could rebalance it every day and people would make a ton of money rebalancing it and uh and it would just drive towards the But that an index is not
0: meant to be David Banks' view of what the future should be. An index is meant to be the current reflection Of where the economy is, right? So
2: where
1: the market is,
0: yeah.
2: Indexes are generally market cap weighted, so that you have the same weighting as the rest of the market. But that means you, first of all, it means you're you're buying high and selling low. Um, Sure, but nonetheless, and, and it also means that you're just chasing. You're just chasing. Each other's tails. And so there's nothing magic about market cap weighted indexes. You could weight them by whatever whatever. And yet
0: nonetheless, what we've seen is institutional investors over the past decade going into indexes at a higher and higher rate, including your friends, the universal owners. And they're not all gonna suddenly turn around and be like, you know what? I'm gonna invest in the, you know, low carbon indices, because that's not how investors work. And their job is not to be forward-looking. Um, their job is to be conservative. So that, you know, the the way you you would have to force that change through regulation.
2: Exactly. Well, again, doesn't the disruption and the crisis cause a fundamental rethink of the assumptions that just exactly the assumptions that you both have all laid out, which are exactly, I'm not disputing that that is the, the the current state of play. What I'm just positing is doesn't a disruption of this scale actually open the way to question those underlying assumptions, change those underlying assumptions, design a system more
0: but resilient, then, yeah. more but,
2: sustainable, but David, more but David,
1: But David, to play devil's advocate, the cause of this crisis was external to the market, right? It was this global pandemic it, it's different from the Great Recession that was caused by a housing crisis, and you can debate the different roles the different actors in the market played, uh, but there was a clear case to be made that change was necessary after the Great Recession and the, the global financial crisis uh, caused by you know, the housing uh, crisis and collapse and lots of different kind of activity that you could say there are some bad actors uh, involved. With this, uh, it, it's not as if the... Uh, the the markets themselves maybe they didn't price in the risk of a global pandemic well enough but it's not the the cause of this uh you know huge financial uh challenge we have right now is not due to the nefarious actions of actors in the market it's well, I, due I have to, to yeah no, i right? I think so, I,
2: th- I think that I think there's a, that's a good distinction to make but i have two quick thoughts. One is, you know, you could make the argument that people have, of course, that it's not really as much of a black swan as all that since everybody was predicting it. And as Imogen said, you know, it was sort of, you know, I I think in all the contingency scenario planning of all these major institutions, you know, central banks and and whatnot, um, you know, pandemics did merit, you know, at least a footnote and some list of possible risks. But um, so it wasn't exactly a black swan. But leaving that aside, even the broader point seems to me is that take a gift when you get it, right? Like if the green movement said, we have to shut down the global economy in order to re- to, to shift off of fossil fuels and change from an oil economy, because it, the climate crisis is so severe that we must shut down the global economy. You think that would fly in any political environment that we've ever existed in? No. So it couldn't be done as a green thing. And you wouldn't want the entire world blaming the green movement for shutting down the economy. But lo and behold, something happened that did do exactly that. So now you don't have to be blamed for it, but it happened and the global economy got shut down. So take that moment and put into place the plans that you had for the other side and go and run like hell while the window is open for that brief second before it slams shut again from, from old thinking. I know I sound like a crazy person who's been locked in my, in my house for, for, for seven weeks.
1: <laughs> there's, there's a reason for that. So Imogen, where, where do we go from here?
0: I, I don't mean in, in our podcast thanks, thanks. conversation. I mean,
1: where, where do you see uh, the opportunity for us uh, to... to to move towards a more inclusive, more sustainable uh, financial system in the future,
0: I think that we have to take a more holistic approach. I think that it's not you know, change is not going to come out of the invest and in, you know invest the investment offices of really anywhere. Change is going to come through stakeholders, voters, um, organized labor, consumers, forcing you know, the, the change we want to see in the world. Um, you know, I think the danger of this moment is that, you know, the corporations just te- keep getting, you know, Jeff Bezos gets even richer and you have, you know, a bunch of, you know, workers on the front lines. So I do think that, you know, we are recognizing the importance that essential workers do, right? I think that you you would have to be, you know, an incredibly heartless human being not to think oh my god, like, we are valuing the wrong people. Um, and so I think on a a personal, and this happened in, after 2008 in finance, actually, you saw like a lot of bankers kind of realize, you know, holy shit, I didn't want to be spending my time, like, you know, ripping off people and doing terrible things and sort of reevaluating what they they do. And I think that there will be a, a re-evaluation, by, by many, you know, certainly not the political right, of who is important and how we value people. And, and I think that that, you know, I mean, look at what's happening with the UK with the National Healthcare Service, you know, I mean, the Tories were like trying to destroy the NHS and then, you know, it saved Boris Johnson's life, right? Like, if that doesn't do something to, to someone, and if that doesn't do something to a party, you know then i think that we're in real trouble but i don't think that you know i think for all of this you know it's a marathon not a sprint and it's going to be building on those that those incremental changes and that that, that visceral recognition and and moving towards making a difference um i, I was know.
2: i was right with you Imogen and i wanted i wanted to end on a on a note of you know strong agreement because i do think the popular mobilization that you called for is exactly right and it is not just you know investors sort of th- waking up and thinking this it's 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 pressure from 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 obviously not only asset owners but like you said workers customers um and and communities um uh, pol- you know, political political movements, etc., and that. Um, so I totally agree with that. I lost you at the at the incremental, you know, building upon stage because I think it's always kind of too early until it's too late. And and I've just seen, you know, grizzled veteran as I am, all these crises where um, things open up and then they slam shut very quickly. Um, then all of a sudden, the money's all gone, the the deed has been done, and you're left to again pick up the pieces, rebuilding from a a worse position. So, I think you're probably right in the way that that's how it turns out. I just want to cling to my 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 faint uh
0: No, uh, I mean, of, and maybe we of, do. Threads of hope. Maybe we do find a way to rebuild from a stronger position, right? Like maybe it maybe it is like having clarity of of purpose and sincerity and kind of finding those people and supporting and empowering those people not the ones who are necessarily like you know beating themselves on the chest and say saying what a great job they're doing right like it's kind of finding it's finding like new heroes and new ways of doing things but that also means changing the status quo and i think the danger is is that the majority of people in positions of power and by the way that includes a lot of people in impact investing land don't actually want to change the status quo and that's now why change is Now you're getting hard. to the
2: heart of the matter, and I think <laughs> that would be a that would be a great uh, a great follow up conversation. I, Brian, can you? I, can I agree. We, uh... I agree.
1: I think I think that's a good a good place to leave it for now, and I think that's a good uh, conversation to pick up another time. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you so much to David Bank. Thank you, Brian, and thank you as always, Imogen. And thank you to Imogen Rose Smith.
0: Thank you, Brian, and thank you as always, David. <laughs>
1: That's great. And you can read more about Private Capital's response to the coronavirus crisis at impactalpha.com. Only subscribers receive full access to Impact Alpha content, including deal flow, job postings, and a Slack channel. Thanks to David Bank, Imogen Rose Smith, and our producer, Isaac Silk, who also wrote the theme song. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact at the fintech company, LiquidNet. We'll see you in some sense of the word next time.